I have the privilege of doing the opening, which would be considered an introduction to the book. We'll look at the first four verses tonight, which is considered the prologue of the letter of 1 John. We have entitled the whole series, Because He First Loved Us. And my prayer for us is that what, how we respond to the letter of 1 John is going to be important. We do what we do because he first loved us. So I'm going to turn you to that theme verse. And there are, there are a lot of verses that could be the theme verse for 1 John. But this is where the Lord has us as a leadership and I believe as a church. Let's take a look together at 1 John 4. Look at verse 18. We'll go back just a verse. It says, there is no fear in love, 1 John 4, 18. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love, 1 John 4, 19, theme verse, because he first loved us. Now, we all know that there's been songs that go, we love him because he first loved us. And certainly that's true. Uh, God loved us first. He demonstrated that love for us on the cross, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He put his love on display. But notice the flow of the verse. It says, if someone says, I love God, so they make that profession, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Back to 1 John chapter 1. You cannot detach the love of the head from the love of the body. See, the fellowship that we enjoy with the head of the church, Jesus Christ, is connected to his body. In fact, 1 John 3.14, if you're taking notes, says we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love God's people. So if you don't have the love of God's people in your heart, and I know that some of God's people are harder than hard to love. <laughs> Look, some of us are prickly. Look, we get it. But we're not supposed to just love those who love us. Jesus said that's what everybody does. Everybody loves those who love them. The challenge is to love others with God's love despite what you get back. In fact, that's what we would argue is true agape love. It's to love, not with expectation of what I get in return. Now, this first message is called the Word of Life. It's the prologue. And what I'd ask you to do, if you're physically able to stand with us for the reading of the first four verses, let's do that together. 1 John 1, verse 1 opens this way. What was from the beginning, 1 John 1, 1, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the Word of Life. And the life, verse 2, was manifested. And we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. You may be seated. Father, thank you so much for all those who've gathered on this Wednesday night, those who've joined us 
via live stream on YouTube. We're grateful for that platform as well. We have brothers and sisters in other states that join us live. They can't be here, but they are here in spirit so to speak, and we are so grateful for them as well. But we're grateful to be together on this Wednesday night, and we're grateful to turn to the book of 1 John. And I know it has a lot for us, but one of the main things that's on our hearts, Lord, is what we do is because you first loved us. And I pray that our love will grow, that it will excel even more. There's great love in this room. There's incredible saints of God who have stepped out and loved well, but I pray that that love will multiply. I pray tonight that you would help us to hear your voice, and I pray that you will make us more like you. That's my simple prayer. Make me more like you, Lord. Change my heart. Make it ever true. Change my heart. Make me more like you. You are the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me. This is what I pray. Bless your people tonight who have gathered in your name. In Jesus' name, if you agree, would you say? Amen. First John is a letter that mines for authenticity. It is a letter that is going to ask you and me questions about our faith. John is going to ask us to examine whether or not our profession squares with our behavior, with our actions in our everyday life. And this is a letter that much like the book of James is going to hit the the rubber and the road together. It's going to challenge us to look at our profession and ask the question, are we truly living out what we say we believe, who we say we are? And one of the biggest tests of our authenticity is the test of love. Do you love God? Do you love others? Do you make a profession with your lips, but your heart is far from him and thus far from others? This has been called the epistle, that simply means letter of eternal life. For it is the Son who gives life. If you have the Son, you have the life. 1 John 5, 12, if you don't have the Son, you don't have the life that this letter is talking about. That life is available to you, but you must receive that life, and that life is found in Jesus Christ. To put it simply, we are going to be called in 1 John to keep his commandments. And his commandments for the believer are not burdensome. In fact, the psalmist says in Psalm 119, they're the joy and delight of my heart. It should be our joy and delight to do God's commandments. They're not a burden. They're a delight for the believer. And so we're going to have some different tests that we look at. But the ultimate test is this. It's in 1 John 2, 6. Take a peek ahead as we do a bit of an introduction tonight. The one who says, 1 John 2, 6, he abides in him, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. If you want the ultimate test of a real, genuine conversion to Christ, And some of you may think that this is just too high, but this is what the Bible says, and I've just read you a Bible verse, 1 John 2, 6. If you make a confession that you abide in him, and that's the key, is that you abide in him. When I'm not staying close to the Lord, I don't have the goods to do any of this. But when it's his love, when it's his power, when it's the power of his Holy Spirit, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And we are called in 1 John 2, 6 to walk 
in the same manner as he walked. So the only way that you're going to be able to do that is to study the life of Jesus, first of all, and know how he walked, and then to tap into the power by which you can walk. We have to know who he is, and we have to know what he would have for us to do. We need to know the true Christ, the true Jesus, the true gospel, because there is another gospel. There is another uh, Jesus, 2 Corinthians 11 says, and another gospel, which is really not another. Galatians 1, Paul says, even if we or an angel from heaven preach to you any other gospel, then we have preached to you, let that person, whether it's an angel or one of us, let them be accursed. As I've said before, so I say again, if anyone preaches a go another gospel contrary to the one that we have preached, let him be anathema. Let him be under the curse of God. Now that's strong language, but the reason that that's so strong is because in the first century there were many false gospels that were running around the landscape. Many people who were preaching another Jesus and another gospel. People who claimed to be the Messiah. People who claimed that they had special knowledge that nobody else had. And they were going around the uh, landscape in the first century just like we have today and claiming that they had this special knowledge. And I bring this up because this is the backdrop of 1 John. And the backdrop of, backdrop of 1 John is an ancient heresy that was at least developing at the end of the first century. And it's the ancient heresy called Gnosticism. Now in Greek, the word for knowledge is gnosis, but it's spelled G-N-O-S-I-S. And so in today's world, you might meet someone who says they're an agnostic. And an agnostic, you put the A before the word gnostic, and what you basically have is a person who says, I don't know. The one thing that I know is I don't know. The A cancels out the knowledge. They are an agnostic. They just simply think that they can't know about God and Jesus and that kind of thing. And you may know an agnostic. Maybe you're even an agnostic tonight. Maybe you're just not sure. And that's you know not a, a, a horrible place to be. As long as you keep your heart open, uh, the Lord can meet you there. But the Gnostic or Gnosticism or Gnostic heresy was the opposite. Not only did they say we know, but we're the only ones that really know. We have a special initiated knowledge for the elite. We have a special, uh, you know, compartment in our lives that takes us directly to this special knowledge that you must be initiated into. And if you're not initiated into this Gnostic knowledge, then you don't really know God. And so what happened in the early church is that people began to leave the church under the banner of Gnosticism. They basically said something like this. I know we used to do Bible study together. I know we used to go to the same church together. But you guys don't really know what you're talking about. You see, I've heard this new teaching. And this new teaching says there's something special. There's some uh, special knowledge that you have to have to tap into to be up here, to know God. You've heard it all before. It comes in different packages in different ways. But this is what they were saying. And people walked away from the church. They disfellowshipped. They broke fellowship. Skip ahead to 1 John 2. Look at verse 18. This gives you uh, kind of the uh, idea of what was going on. Children, 1 John 2, 18. It is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, 
Even now, many antichrists have arisen, and this would be not the antichrist, but those who were teaching another gospel, another Christ, they've arisen even in the first century. From this, we know that it is the last hour. Notice John says, they went out from us, they broke fellowship, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they are not, they all are not of us. But you, by contrast, have an anointing from the Holy One. That is, we have the Holy Spirit within us. And you all know. Now, this is what was happening in the first century. Uh, people were bewildered and they were broken by an exodus in the church. And I don't have to tell you guys that I could name multiple uh, situations right now, whether it's a pastor, worship leader, famous uh, singer in a Christian rock band who have indeed apostatized from the faith in the last year. Uh, it, it amazes me what has happened in the Christian world. Never in my 30 years 30 plus years now of being around the ministry, have I seen this happen at this level where you hear, you turn around and this worship leader is now an agnostic or this worship leader is not sure. Maybe he believes in a universal Christ or the new age or whatever. And it just amazes me. And this is nothing new. This has been happening for quite some time. People walking away from Christ, apostatizing, walking away from the truth. And you know, whenever someone walks away from the truth, uh, even some of you have some stories where perhaps a person who led you to Christ is no longer walking with the Lord. And that is, uh, you know, a tough thing to try to understand. How could it be that a person who led me to the Lord, a person who maybe taught youth group or Sunday school and had all this influence is now claiming that they don't know if they're even a Christian. What am I to do with that if I'm that person that they led to the Lord? Or what do I do uh, with a uh, backslidden friend or that kind of thing? Well, this is what 1 John is going to get at. This has been called a family fellowship epistle because it invites us uh, to the true meaning of fellowship. Its author is John. So John wrote the Gospel of John. He's the fourth evangelist. And he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he wrote the book of what? Revelation. So John wrote multiple books in our New Testament. He was known as the beloved apostle, the one whom Jesus loved, indeed the one who used to rest his head on the Lord's chest. He had an intimate relationship with the Lord. He may have been the youngest of the 12 apostles and to our knowledge was the last living apostle. After everybody was gone, John still was alive. In John 21, when Jesus restores Peter on the seashore. He challenges Peter to feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And he tells Peter that you're going to be led away and you're going to go somewhere where you don't want to go and you're going to stretch out your hands and you're going to be led away. And this, I'm paraphrasing, was an indication of the way that Peter was going to die. And several church fathers confirmed that Peter was crucified, some say upside down. And this was the kind of death with which Peter would glorify the Lord. This is John 21, right in verses 18 through 25. And so as Jesus was telling Peter this, John the apostle was also walking with them. And Peter turned around and said, what about him? <laughs> you ever done that before? Oh, Lord, you're telling me about the way that I'm going to die. What about that guy? 
What's going to happen to him? And Jesus said, if I want him to live until I return, what's that to you? Follow me. And apparently from that discourse or dialogue, there was a rumor that went around that maybe John might live forever until the Lord returned, almost like that night in the, was the Indiana Jones where he was alive that whole time with the Holy Grail. Not theologically correct, but you get, you get the point. That, but John corrects that at the end of the Gospel of John. He says that's, that's not what was meant. But here's what we do know. John lived to a very old age and was the last surviving apostle. Many, if not all of the apostles, were martyred in a brutal way, except for John. And John stuck around, and there are many scholars that date 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation towards the end of the first century. So we're talking about in the 90s AD. So this would have made John very young when Jesus was ministering, and obviously a, you know, a pretty old guy now at the time that he's penning 1 John. You could imagine how much in demand he would have been. If you were the last living apostle that had you know, uh, immediate fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, how much would you want to talk to John if you lived in the first century? And this is actually what happened. Polycarp and Papias, who lived in the end, at the end of the first century and into the second century, uh, it's documented by the church fathers that they had dialogue with John, and that was a treasured thing that they had. And they listened closely to his words because he was the one who spent three and a half years with the Lord and experienced his resurrection and so forth. So John is our author. That's uh, confirmed by several early fathers, Papias, Polycarp, Ignatius uh, gives allusions to the book of 1 John, and even Clement of Alexandria. What I just shared with you is those who actually allude to or quote 1 John. Let me read those names quickly. Ignatius, martyred in A.D. 110. Polycarp, who wrote a letter to the Philippian church in A.D. 120, so just at the turn of the second century. Papias, who was a contemporary of Polycarp, mentions 1 John. And Justin Martyr, who lived 100 to 165 A.D., and then Clement of Alexandria. So this particular letter, 1 John, was well known. It was uh, something that was credited to the Apostle John, the one that Jesus loved. And there's several things that you could see about the purpose of the writing. Let me just in rapid fire show you several verses. 1 John 1, 4 says, These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you, 2, 1, that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, we all, we all know 1 John 2, 1. We all know we have an advocate. We all know that he's our propitiation. But John says, I, I write to you that you might not be in a pattern of sin. <laughs> so that was the purpose of the writing. Yes, we have an advocate, but let's not sin. In 1 John 2, 12 through 14, I won't read it for you, but he addresses several uh, the young and the old there, because they know the Lord, they're strong in the word, etc. Uh, 2.21 of 1 John says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. 1 John 2.26 says, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. John is going to straighten out them on doctrine. And then all the way to 1 John 5.13 because some people were saying 
related to this Gnostic heresy. If you are not in this special camp of knowledge, then you don't know the Lord. And 1 John 5.13 says, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you might what? that you may know that you have eternal life. No matter what these people are telling you about this special, esoteric, Gnostic knowledge, don't buy it. Uh, and then 1 John 5.19 says that we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so this Gnostic heresy, back to 1 John chapter 1, was troubling the church. Let me quickly share with you what Gnosticism claimed. Special secret knowledge, super knowledge that was even higher than scripture. Gnosticism was influenced by such philosophers as Plato, who held to a dualistic view, widely held at this time, that said matter was inherently evil, essentially evil, and spirit was essentially good. As a result of this presupposition, these false teachers, although attributing some form of deity to Christ, denied his true humanity. Uh, to preserve him from evil. They said something like this. How could Jesus be incarnated? Whenever you hear incarnated, just think of he became flesh. How could he be incarnated if all matter is evil? How could he be in a body? And so a form of this early heresy was known as docetism, uh, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M, docetism, and what it basically said, the, the Greek word means that Jesus just appeared to be human. They said something like this. When he walked, he didn't leave footprints in the sand. He appeared as if he were a human being, but he wasn't actually human. He was more spirit because he couldn't be incarnated because all matter is evil. Now, this also affected the creation account. They denied the biblical creation account in Genesis 1. Because if all matter is evil, God can't be touched by evil. Therefore, the biblical creation account is not accurate. And they said that what happened was the God, the true God, had other, uh, you know, lesser gods down the line. They called it a demiurge. And somewhere down the line from the true God, because he couldn't be touched by evil, some lesser being made everything, but not the true God. And they also, there was another implication of Gnosticism, and it was this. They denied the resurrection body. Because they said, how could you be resurrected in a new body if all matter is evil, then the resurrection body can't be true. And Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians 15 and says, look, if there is no resurrection body, if Christ hasn't been risen, you're dead in your sins. And yes, the, the, the new body is a spiritual body in the sense that it's still physical, but it will be new, it will be untainted by sin. But in the Greek mind, they, they had kind of this idea that it would be kind of a zombie event. And, and I'm trying as a Greek uh, who's intellectual and, and you know, into the, the, the freedom that I'm going to receive when I die, I'm going to be set free from the shackles of a body. Don't preach to me about a resurrection. And then there was something else. Because all matter is evil and only the spirit is essentially good, the Gnostics said, one form of it said, you can do whatever you want with your body because matter is evil and unredeemable anyway. So you can go sleep with a prostitute. You can engage in homosexual behavior. You can cheat on your wife. You can do whatever you want to do, but your spirit's going to still remain good. 
And in the first century, a very common feature was going to prostitutes. And there would be temple prostitutes, and paganism was connected to prostitution. And people would go, and they would think that they could do this, and it wouldn't affect them because the body was evil anyway. So you get hungry, and you eat. You have an urge, and you fulfill it. That's what they said. And Paul blew that argument up in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's go there for a second. Hold your place in 1 John. Let me show you this, because this is, this is part of how we understand how false doctrine affects uh, not only theology, but behavior. Take a look. This is uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away my mem- uh, the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute or harlot? May it never be, God forbid. 6.16 of 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says the two will become one flesh. Uh, I had a friend who called me some years ago. He had a Bible question, and he said he had read 1 Corinthians 6, and he said, does that mean that everyone I've ever slept with is now my spouse? Because it says, don't you know if you sleep with a prostitute, the two will become flesh, one flesh. That's a, that's a marriage verse. Am I married to everyone I ever slept with? And I, my response was, I hope not. <laughs> no, that's not what it means. But it does mean that the marriage bed and intimacy is to be specially set apart only for marriage between one man and one woman because there's a mystical union and covenant that goes far beyond just an act or swiping left on an app or swiping right or whatever they swipe and whatever they're doing with the apps and the hookup culture and everything else where they act like sex is meaningless. That is a lie. It's a lie. God has wired you in such a way that if you are intimate with someone, it will be written on your soul. Don't you buy the cultural lie, young lady, young man, because you're hearing it everywhere, and this is what they're going to tell you. It's no big deal. You can just do whatever you want to do and move on. You won't. You won't. They won't show you the picture the next day. They won't tell you about tomorrow morning. They won't tell you about the pregnancy test when now you got to deal with that and then figure out what your morals are going to be on the rest of the stuff that comes with that. See, this is what the world sells us. And Paul says, that's just false. That's a lie. And Gnosticism was driving this, or at least early forms of it, Greek intellectual knowledge. He says, 17, the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. There's fellowship to be one with the Lord. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man or woman sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? You have been redeemed. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, in light of that, what, was, what should we do, brethren? Glorify God in your body. Your body matters. What you do with your body matters. It is not inconsequential. It is important to the Lord. In fact, the Bible says, and this is somewhat mysterious how this all works, that your body actually houses the temple of, 
or is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It houses the presence of God. Now, I can't explain everything uh, about that to you, but God, you know, uh, when we might think of uh, ancient peoples or the like, or even ancient Israel, the Shekinah would come down on the temple and so forth. But now there is not that temple. Now it is you. God dwells among his people. He dwells in his church individually and corporately. And enough of this nonsense where I can just be a Christian wherever I am and I can be a solo Christian. Uh, uh, uh. The complete picture is the corporate body together, God indwelling, tabernacling among us. And so they denied features of biblical creation, the resurrection, uh, what you did with your body. And uh, they, there was a, a man named Corinthus or Corinthus, C-E-R-I-N-T-H-U-S. He's trained in Egypt, resident province of Asia, who flourished in the 90s, first century A.D., who contended that Christ's spirit, spirit in quotes, descended on the human Jesus at his baptism, but left him just before his crucifixion. And John wrote that Jesus, who was the Jesus who was baptized at the beginning of his ministry was the same person who was crucified on the cross. You can cross-reference uh, 1 John 5, verse 6. But let me just read to me what is an open and shut case. This is Hebrews 2, 14 through 17, write it down for your notes. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, reading Hebrews 2, 14 through 17, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Serinthus had said, oh, in the Jordan River, when the Spirit came uh, in the form of a dove upon him, and then as he's just about to go to the crucifixion, the, the Spirit comes upon him and leaves him. Oh, no, no, no. From the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The sky grows dark. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's no just human Jesus there. That's the God man who his whole earthly existence and even today remains the God man. He is 100% God, 100% man. But once again, they said, well, how could the uh, creator or the Messiah come down and die in such a horrible, terrible way? This was anathema to the Greek mind. But for God, Christ dying on the cross is the power of God. Amen? We preach Christ crucified. Not just some spirit of Christ, but the Christ, the embodiment of God died on the cross for our sins. Enough with this so-called dualistic nonsense. And we love as people to compartmentalize things because it lets us off the hook, let's face it, for many things that we compromise on. And so, verse 1, 1 John 1, all that was preamble. That's why we can only do four verses tonight. What was from the beginning, ap, our case, the word arche in uh, Greek 
is also in John 1.1, and it has the idea of source or architect. What was from the beginning, there are some that believe the beginning of the gospel, some believe here uh, all the way back to the beginning or before creation. What we have heard, now what John is going to emphasize is the physical senses interacting with the real Jesus to debunk the Gnostic heresy, at least early forms of it. What we have heard, we is a collective we, the, I think here the apostles, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld, which has the idea of gazing, is the uh, Greek word from which we get the word theater. Uh, so it has the idea of, if you were to watch a movie, for example, you watch a two-half-hour, three-hour movie, you're gazing up at the screen. That's the idea. This is not just simply a glance. This is a studied gaze. We gazed at him. We beheld him. We looked closely, and we touched him. Our hands handled concerning the word, that's lagos in Greek, life is zoe. Those are words often used in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made, were made by Him and for Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. And in Him was life, and that life is the light of men. Amen? You can go from 1 John 1, and we won't go there for the sake of time, to John 1, verses 1 through 4, and get the same concepts. The way you can understand this is if Jesus was there in the beginning, and he is the creator, then he was there before the beginning began. Can I get a witness? If you're the beginner, then you were there before the beginning began. That's what Revelation 3.14 says, that Jesus is the beginning of God's creation. Jehovah's Witnesses love to say, oh, that means that he had a beginning. No, that's not what it means. It means he's the beginner. He's the source. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. As amazing as it is, the creator came down on that Bethlehem night in the person of Jesus Christ. It was God in human flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. And we beheld his glory, says John in John 1.14. The word became what? Flesh incarnated. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen? This is what we saw. John says, I saw him. John says, I heard him. Never did a man speak like he spoke. How many sermons did John hear off the record? so to speak, because not everything that Jesus did and said was, was recorded. John says at the end of the Gospel of John, I, 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 perhaps if everything was recorded that Jesus did, it would fill all the libraries of the whole world. How many times was Jesus maybe resting and John was gazing at him? Would you? I'd be looking at him. <laughs> I'd be examining him. I'd have a whole list of questions. I'd probably freak him out when he woke up. <laughs> you know, you ever had a child looking at you? And you what are you doing, man? I'm just, I'm gazing at you, Lord. <laughs> to behold the, the beauty of the Lord. What's the psalmist say? I want to dwell in his tabernacle all the days of my life that I might behold the beauty of the Lord. Amen? 
and to dwell in his tabernacle. One day, the Bible says we're going to see his face. You know, once they conceived of who he was, or at least had a notion of who he was, I'm sure there were many times when they were staring at him, many times when, you know, they heard his voice and were thrilled at it. How about John resting his head on Jesus' chest and hearing he had, a, he had a pumping heart? He was truly human. And John's point in 1 John 1.1 1, 1 is enough with this Gnostic nonsense. I was with him. I heard him. I saw him. I gazed at him. I touched him. I leaned on his chest. Don't tell me he was a phantom. Don't tell me he didn't leave footprints. Oh, no, no, no. He was fully human and yet fully God. This is the beauty of the truth of who Jesus is. And while people will try to redefine the biblical Christ, lots of luck. Because I don't want to stand before him and try to answer that I tried to redefine you because I didn't get the Trinity or I didn't get the dual nature of Christ, the, what's called the hypostatic union. No, 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 no. Don't do that. You let the Bible make those determinations. You follow God's word. Now, one, one of the things that the, the uh, First John letter does, and I even have it, have it, did I have you turn back to First John 1? I don't know if I did or didn't, but anyway. There's some, there's some tests. <laughs> and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, I want to just show you a few samples, and I'm going to just give you a couple highlights. <laughs> we'll go to the disco later on. This is uh, 1 John 1, look at verse 8. This is your profession and your life. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Look at verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness... We lie and we don't practice the truth. Now, there's the negative. But if we walk in the light as he is in, himself is in the light, we have what? Fellowship with who? One another. Notice this. This is about the church. We can say, verse 6, that we have fellowship with him. We can say, you know, the, the, apparently the Gnostics said, uh, I'm not touched by sin. I don't, I don't sin anymore because I'm a Gnostic and I've, I've elevated to a higher level. Since only my spirit is essentially good and all matter is evil, whatever I do with my body is not technically sin. So I don't really sin anymore. So they claim that they had no sin. And this is how people will do things. They'll, they'll make categorical statements in their theology that then gets them, they think that gets them off the hook in their practice. This is how some people today can say I'm a Christian and be in open, unrepentant rebellion before God and still say they're okay. Notice, if we say, verse 10, we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Look at verse four of chapter two. The one who says, I've come to know him, I'm a Christian, and does not keep his commandments what is he? He's a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, brethren, I'm just reading you Bible verses. 
But this is what the scripture says. And see, 1 John, he's not pulling any punches. And we do remember that the Gnostic heresy is behind this. And John is not saying that Christians are going to be perfect and they're always going to do everything right. That is not what he's saying. But he is attacking the early forms of Gnosticism to say, if you guys are going to use this excuse and say that you know the Lord and you're doing this stuff and you're leading other people astray, it ain't going to fly. What was from the beginning? The creator came down. He's called upon us to love one another, to do things his way. We saw him. We heard him. Peter and John in Acts 4.19 answered the Sanhedrin, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God you judge, we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and what we have heard. And so we heard him. We saw him. We gazed upon him. I leaned on his chest. We touched him. He's the word of life. In the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus appears before the disciples, they're startled. And he, stood, he himself stood in the midst. This is Luke 24, 37. And they were frightened. They thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Handle me and see, New King James. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Touch me. And while they could not still still could not believe for joy and were marveling. He said, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Thomas, reach your finger here and touch my wounds. Reach into my side. Don't be unbelieving, but believe. It is me. You see, this is the idea of our hands handled him. We touched him. We touched the nail prints in his hand. The same Jesus that went to the cross, the same Jesus that went into the tomb, rose from the dead. The same Christ. Not some twin, not some spirit that came and went. No, no, no. Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. And that life, 1 John 1, 2, was manifested. It was made visible, realized, exposed to us. We interacted with him with all of our senses, they might say, and we have seen and we bear witness and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father. The Father, remember, sent the Son because he loved the world and was made known, manifested to us. This life was revealed to us. Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. And what we have seen and heard, 1 John 1, 3, we proclaim we bring the good tidings, the good news we announce to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us. You can be just like us, experience Jesus. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, once you know the true Christ, you want to invite other people to know him, amen? And that's what the disciples were commissioned to do by the Lord. You've seen me. Blessed are your eyes, for they have seen what other prophets longed to see and did not see at your ears, for they have heard what others longed to hear. Now, go and share the message of life with others. And I'm going to give you power. You're going to wait in Jerusalem 10 extra days after the 40. On the day of Pentecost, the power is going to come, and you will be my witnesses. Amen? And so we go and we share. We invite people into fellowship. 
We invite people, look at the end of verse 3, into fellowship with the Father, with his Son, Jesus Christ. Of course, the Holy Spirit is implied there. John 14, 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, John 14, 23, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. We will fellowship with him. See, the reason that we have fellowship tonight, us as believers, is because we have one thing in common. The same God who lives in you lives in me. That's what gives us fellowship. The truth of the gospel is what gives us fellowship. And the gospel is the truth of Jesus. And Jesus lives in me and lives in you and lives in us. That's why it's so sweet when we come together. When Shane kind of tones down the, the uh, instrument and you sing, I love to hear your collective voices. And think of what that must do for the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because we are one in him. We have fellowship. And that is our oneness, our commonality, our koinonia is all about the one to whom we belong. We're all married to him. We're all going to the same big house. We're all serving the same king. We're all in the same kingdom. Amen? This is true fellowship. Not some secret esoteric knowledge. Not some teacher who says, oh, you... You, you don't really get it. You know, you've, you've got to do this and that. Don't believe it. You see, we have the commonality of being sealed with the Holy Spirit. We have true fellowship. And here's one of the things that John, by the Holy Spirit, wants us to experience. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Sometimes when someone kind of walks away from biblical principles or doctrine... They'll say something like this. You know, I'm just trying to have a good time. I'm just trying to uh, find out who I am. Really? <laughs> I've never quite understood that one. I'm just going to go somewhere and find out who I am. Why do you got to go somewhere to find out who you are? Aren't you with yourself wherever you are? Yeah, but if I go over here, then I'll figure out who I am. Why? <laughs> I'm trying to get rid of a lot of that stuff. I'm tired of that stupid inner voice. That, you know what I'm saying? Uh, the flesh and all that goes with it. I don't want that. I want to know who he is. I, I want to get to know him better so that, that way the flesh can die more and I can turn off all that nonsense. That's what we're after. The world says, go find yourself. You, you've got to be true to yourself. What does that mean? You need to be true to God who made you in his image and knows what the supreme best for you is. You don't know that. God knows that. In the upper room the night before Jesus died, he says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. The disciples were scratching their heads. Where's he going? What's he talking about? This is my commandment. Love one another as I've loved you. I'm leaving and I want you to take the baton. And your joy is going to be full when you love each other the way I've shown you to love. See, we're looking often in all the wrong places to find our joy. One of my greatest joys is to love people with his love. Sometimes I fail. Sometimes I'm selfish. Sometimes I make it about me. Peter says, even though you haven't seen him, you love him. 
And though you don't see him now, you believe in him and you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And so 1 John 1, 1 through 4 is a prologue uh, packed with incredible stuff. One of the things that my heart would want to share with you is that word joy in verse 4. That our joy, our collective joy as the church would be made full. It would be running over. We would rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and be a thankful people. Father, thank you so much for those who are here tonight. Thank you for those who are part of your uh, family who know the true Christ. Thank you for those who may have joined us tonight and don't know you yet, but would like to know you. You know, uh, Jesus Christ is here. And he will come and make his abode in you if you will open your heart to him. If you will believe what he's said about himself. If you will believe his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. If you will trust the Christ of the Bible. Even if you don't get every angle of it, trust in him. Because he alone is the life giver. He alone is the word of life. He alone saves. He will give you eternal life, but you must ask for it. You must receive him. And so take a moment. We're about to take communion together. We're gonna fellowship in at the Lord's table. But if you don't know him, if you're a prodigal, if you've been pulled away by a Gnostic type of gospel, I put that in quotes, a Gnostic gospel that said, oh, you can do it this way, and there's secret knowledge over here, and those Christians, don't, they don't know what they're talking about, and that Bible, and you know what? Come home, man. Believe the word of God. Believe a man who, written, who wrote by the power of the Holy Spirit who was there, said, I saw him, I heard him, I know who he is, and I'm telling you, you can have fellowship with him. You can know him. You can pass out of death into life. Cry out to him from your soul. Lord Jesus, save me. Lord Jesus, I want to come home. I'm sorry for my sin. I repent. I trust you. Father, for the hearts that are crying out, you alone know every heart. Would you bless? Would you save, restore, Do your work, Lord. You're so majestic at what you do. You're a God of redemption, a God of reconciliation, a God who heals, restores. Father, would you do that right now in the lives and hearts of those who are here, those who are watching, those who may watch this later. We love you. As we come to your table, we pray that you would just meet us in a special way and uh, fill us up with that joy of our salvation. In Christ's name we pray, amen.